Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Heidi Grant Halverson. Heidi is a social psychologist, speaker, and author who studies the science of motivation and communication. She is the associate director of the Motivation Science Center at the Columbia Business School and senior consultant for the Neuro Leadership Institute. She's the author of such esteemed books as Nine Things Successful People Do Differently, Succeed, How We Can Reach Our Goals, Focus, Use Different Ways of Seeing the World for Success and Influence, which was co-authored with E. Tori Higgins, and most recently, No One Understands You and What to Do About It. Thanks, Heidi. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. That was one of the longest intros I've done so far on this yeah. podcast. Yeah, well, because uh, you gave like not only the book titles, but the, but the, the, the subtitle too, is so you, you went whole hog, I did. which I appreciate. I think the subtitles add uh, good value in all. They sentences. do. Yeah. But this is my favorite book title, the new one, because it just makes me laugh every time I say it. It makes other people laugh too. No one <laughs> understands you and what to do about it is so. It's like I, I feel like for once I really named a book exactly what it is. Oh. <laughs> Which is sort of, you know, you know, point. from book naming is is yes. its own special focused group thing that usually ends up being not at all what you thought you would call your book. Um, but this one uh, ended up okay. I kind of like it. I like it a lot. So I, th- I think all of us feel as though we're misunderstood. Right. Uh, I don't. I think that if you create a questionnaire and one of the items in the questionnaire was, I am misunderstood, there would be very low variance. I that. agree. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think that this book applies to everyone. And so everyone is 
misunderstood. And and that book goes through, you know, we could start discussing that book and then we can work backwards to your older books as, throughout sure. the course of this interview. But we can start with that. No one understands you. Um, so why are people so hard to understand? I, I think it's one of these things that, um, you know, that, that's because so much of, of person perception of how we make sense of one another because so much of it is unconscious, right? The, the ways in which our brains take information about other people and make them into sort of a coherent impression, like a representation of what that person is like, um, that is, is almost entirely unconscious. And, and because of that, we, we don't realize that, that it's not as simple as sort of, you know, the, the, as Kahneman says, you know, what we see is all there is, that, that we see each other you know, objectively. Um, and, and for most of us, we, we kind of run around much of the time assuming that, that other people um, see us like we see ourselves, or at least that they should um, see us like we see ourselves. And not realizing really that we're asking a lot of them uh, what, when, we, when we assume that that's something that they can do. And if you just sort of think about the list of things that you have access to about you, compared to the list of things that other people have access to about you, it becomes really clear why understanding one another becomes so challenging. So, so for example, you know what you're thinking and what you're feeling and what your intentions are. Um, other people have no access to that. So they can only guess, right? And they can guess based on things like what you say and do. But, of course, what you say and do is, uh, is open to interpretation. Um, that usually even just a simple expression like, hey, how you doing, can be interpreted in a number of ways depending on the, how you say it and the context in which you say it. So, so there's all of this interpretation. People are really having to make guesses, essentially, about what you mean and what you intend and how you're feeling. We think our faces are much more expressive than they actually are. We think our intentions are much clearer than they ever are. Um, and even people who know you for a while, th their guesses tend to get better over time. They, they sort of make more educated guesses um, simply because they've seen they have more information to go on. But, but it, the reality is uh, even people who know each other well, the correlations between how, how what they think, you know, how you see yourself and how other people see you, even among people who've known you for years, tends to be somewhere around 0.5, which is to say it's not nothing. But it's certainly not, it's certainly not anything like a perfect predictor of, of what you are, what you think you, you are like. Fascinating. Um, yeah. Uh, utterly fascinating. I, is, is, let's do a philosophical thought experiment. Uh -huh. um, is there any sort of neurological condition of people who actually don't have access to their own thoughts but only can perceive themselves based on other people's reactions to them? What would that be like? I mean, have, have philosophers ever done that thought experiment of what that we would be like? You know, um, I, I'm I, I I wonder because well, so even social psychologists have 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 done a it's not even a thought experiment, but sort of collected some data about that idea that that one of the first ways we even one of the first kinds of self concepts we even have is is called the you know the the sort of the reflected self, which is the self I you know for very small children, it's the self that I think I am in my my parents' eyes or my caretaker's eyes. And I think that um, so. So you, it's interesting because your self concept certainly is, uh, in part, a reflection of what other people think of you. But but it's important that it's again what you think other people think of you, right? right. So again, we have we have this gap um, where it's you know here's what I think of me, here's what I think you think of me, 
And, and you know, our one of the things about brains is that, as you know, they are sort of meaning making machines and they make they, they make they make sense of things. They're sense making machines. Right. So and what we tend to make the way we tend to make sense of things is so that they are consistent with what we all with what we already think. So part of the reason why, even though, as you said, everybody knows what it's like to be misunderstood, but we're actually probably misunderstood even more than we think we are. Because often we don't, you know, the signals that other people are giving us, that they're, that they're interpreting us in a different way, right? That they, that they think we're coming off as aloof or arrogant or unkind. A lot of times we miss those signals. We just interpret them in a way that's consistent with what we think of ourselves. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's like that guy that walks around the office telling puns all the time and, and everyone groans and says like, oh my God, he's not funny. Why does he keep doing it? Well, he probably actually thinks that you like it more than you do because he's inter- because he likes it. So, so he's interpreting, you know, the groan. It's like, ah, you, you know, but you really did think it was funny, right? So we do a lot of that. Um, we're actually, I mean, the, the sad news is we're, we're misunderstood more than we even think. Some people, I think, are very perceptive and maybe are more in tune to the fact that they're misunderstood than others. Many of us are just kind of, and, you, and everybody knows these people, sort of obliviously walking around thinking that everybody gets them when, in fact, they don't. Oh, this, uh, this individual differences aspect is particularly interesting to me. Are, is it a kind of intelligence to uh, is that like a kind of intelligence to be able to be well calibrated? I mean, I think it's a it's a good question, and I think it's sort of an uh, an open question. But my guess it would be it would have something to do with with the the ability that you know developed ability or or what have you to to take per- perspective um, to and it's basically a perspective taking skill. I yeah. think. Um, in addition to a, a kind of a social sensitivity, and I think those are related, um, but the ability to imagine, you know, some people are, certainly there are individual differences in the extent to which people come across the way they intend to in social situations. And not every, certainly there's nobody that does it right all the time, but there are people who seem to at least intuitively um, get which signals to send in order to signal warmth and which signals to send in order to signal competence or trustworthiness um, or any number of other things. And, and so um, I think that it, the way that they're doing that has something to do with really being able to be very, really paying attention to the reactions that other people are, are, are having and perspective taking, you know, how, how does this look to someone else? You know what it Um, it sounds mm -hmm. more to me like, just expressiveness. Well, expressiveness certainly helps. So, for example, if you look at the things that are, uh, are you know, I, I actually um, for I wrote the, the book for Harvard Business Press, and of course they 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 were interested. And they said, you know, can we have create some sort of measure that measures like that a lot people can like a like a quiz people can take to say like to what extent are you likely to be particularly likely to be misunderstood by others to not come across the way you intend to. And I thought, okay, well, what would that look like? And so I was going through the, the research on what we know is related to being sort of what David Funder would call like a, a good target, right? Somebody that people can easily um, understand and basically accurately, relatively accurately understand. And we know among the things that that certainly are related to that are things like expressiveness. Um, I hate to use the word extroversion because, as you know better than anyone, people misunderstand what these words mean a little well, I bit. I was just going to bring that up. Um, I was just going to discuss yeah, that. Yeah, it, it is like basically like to what extent do you talk? 
I mean, literally being, let's just call it the opposite of shy. And if you're, if you're somebody who talks a lot, who shares your feelings a lot, um, who, who says what you're thinking, um, you are much less likely to be misunderstood than someone who tends to be the quiet type that doesn't really talk about what's going on inside, isn't very comfortable sharing your emotions and so well, forth, simply because people will then have to guess and, well, and then they'll guess wrong. So introverts are, are, are uh, there is a tendency then for introverts to be more misunderstood, which makes them even um, more sort of frustrated in, the, in such a culture that we live in where people are always talking so loud. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that must be frustrating. So it's frustrating, and it's it's very, and it's certainly deeply frustrating to feel that you aren't understood. I think one of the major, I think one of the the, the, the of the many things that social connection gives us, um, like the, the many things we get from it. I think one of them is that feeling of being understood is very um, is is very primally sort of um, fulfills a major need, sort of to feel like we understand the world and we yeah. understand ourselves. And so when you don't get that. Um, and especially if you're looking for it and you don't get it, um, that's, I think, very, very painful. And which is why being a good target, you know, being someone who's sort of easily understood is also related to higher levels of life satisfaction and well-being. It, life is easier when people get you um, yes. and it's harder when they don't. Yes. And I think a, a large part of that is it's not it's it's your own fault sometimes i mean i think it's a, it's important for people to take responsibility that maybe they're not being authentic um, I, or, I agree and, and i think to, and part of the book what i really wanted to give people was some insight into how how little you're actually letting on good. you know that, that again that we have this sense that it, it turns out you know emotions for example the major emotions right so if, we, if you're feeling terror or depression or, or, um, you know, or disgust, there's a good chance I can read that on your face. But, but the chances are that the face you make when you're a little upset by what I just said looks exactly like the face you make when you're not at all upset by what I just said, right? So, so there's... Our, our, what about sort of people who have rest, resting bitch face? What do you do with that? Yes, exactly. People who have resting bitch face are not always being bitchy. I have a, as a matter of fact, I tell a story in the book uh, one of my editors um, of the book t shared this with me when we were talking about it. And he said, you know, when he came, um, when he got his job as sort of head of the editorial staff and he was coming into a new team and he really wanted everyone to, to know that he was going to be someone who really valued their advice, took it very seriously, really wanted their input. And he said, so I made this really tremendous effort to have an active listening face. Um, during right, during right. the meetings for the first like three to four weeks, he said until finally after about four weeks, someone on the team got up the nerve to say, "Hey Tim, are, are you really angry right now?" And he uh -huh. said, "No, of course not. I'm I'm not angry." And he said, "Yeah, but you look really pissed off." <laughs> and uh, and he said, "No, this is my active listening face." And they're like, "Well, your active listening face looks really pissed off." So so it's like it's really. It's it's so hard for us to know, yeah. you know, what we're doing with our faces, what we're doing with our bodies, unless we we actually kind of either cultivate awareness of that or, or really ask for feedback. I, I one of my favorite questions because people say, well, how do I know how I'm coming across to other people? And I think that the, this, my single best answer that I've been able to come up with it, for that is take somebody who who knows you pretty well, right? Who who's, who you who you've known for for a, t a long time and who you feel will be honest, right? Yeah. And ask them to complete this sentence. If I didn't know you better, I would think. 
it's a great opening sentence, right? Because it allows them to say, you know, it's funny. If I didn't know you better, I would yeah. think that you were kind of, you know, yeah. a jerk. Or yeah. I would think that you, were, you weren't listening because, you know, you never look at me when I'm talking. But it's that kind yeah. of like, yeah. oh, over time, I've gotten to know that this impression you give isn't yeah. true. Of course. Um, and so that's a really, those people are the people that are your best resource for finding out what are you accidentally doing? Um, especially in your early encounters with people that maybe, you know, the, the thing about perception, you know, sort of the, the bad news is that it's really easy for other people to get you wrong because, like I said, they really are operating on much less information than you have about you. Um, but, but the good news, if there is good news, it is that the mistakes people tend to make are very predictable. It's not random. So thanks to, you know, 50 years of, of research, we actually do know pretty reliably what kinds of behaviors and, and, and actions and, and, and things that you say signal uh, what, what is the message that they, that they send. Um, you know, and so, for example, we know, you know, and this is, I think, just becoming a bigger and bigger problem thanks to technology. Uh, it's very reliable, leads the case that if you don't look at someone when they're talking to you, mm -hmm. that is a very, very reliable signal of coldness. It's either it's either usually interpreted either as an I don't care about you or I'm not listening. Mm. But usually like and I don't care. Right? Yeah. It's a it's a kind of an arrogant, I don't care, it I'm dismissing you. Power, power dynamic there. Very much so. Yeah. And yet people don't look at you when you're talking for lots of reasons, right? Uh, and often Me they in are particular, in particular. No. <laughs> not you in particular. <laughs> but you know, I know. So I've become really. Once I became aware of that research, I've I've really made an effort to when someone is speaking to me to keep my eyes on them. But with the you know the prevalence of smartphones, and now there's this Apple Watch. I mean, my God, yeah. are we going to ever look at anybody again? So you know, I'm really worried that. Uh, there are a lot of people sending signals out there that they that they don't realize they're sending, um, and that you know, for example, one of the interesting things in the in the, the you know warmth is really important. Not that you be sort of touchy feely and lovey dovey, but that you that you signal to people that you 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 care about them, that you're you're interested in them, that you express empathy where appropriate, you know, that you're listening, right? So and, I, and and if you don't do that, it's it's a real game changer for relationships, and people don't agree. know it. I completely agree. You know, I, I think that um, it is important to to signal warmth uh, for the. Uh, but I think there are a lot of people out there who um, there's like a there's a power dimension. There's a there's like a what, you know what, what on le in the leadership literature isn't there like warmth versus like mm -hmm. uh, leadership and sometimes they conflict. Yeah, uh, are, are there some people who like their whole persona is like they intentionally try to to not do these things because they feel like. It'll uh, lower their. It'll yes. make them equals with others. Yeah. So there's a really some really interesting research on it. It's it's a it's a compensation effect that sort of intuitively. I mean, if you think about this, you know this from everyday life, right? That when you're trying to come across as, and they didn't study on this, right? They uh, ask yeah. people, okay, you know, you're going to have a com you know, in the laboratory, you're going to have a conversation with someone, you're going to write them an email. It's really important that you come across as smart. Uh, or it's really important that you come across as warm. And what you see is uh, when people try to come across as warm. They use fewer, significantly fewer words that are, you know, six letters or more. Okay. Um, they don't talk about themselves. They ask questions about the other person. So it's like, what do we do when we want to set, seem warm? We, we, we ask questions. We show interest. We're flattering. We don't really talk about ourselves. Like stro we, we stroke, stroke their leg. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's maybe a little dangerous. Oh, but, yeah, uh, yeah. 
when we want to be confident, we do the opposite. We, yeah. we talk instead of listen. Yeah. And we, we want to act, you know, we, we play down our warmth. So there is this, there seems to be this, this, and, and it's true that to some extent there is a compensation effect that the more competent you look, the, the, I would phrase it this way. The more competent you look, the more you run the risk of appearing cold. And the more warm you seem, the more you run the risk of not appearing competent. Now, there is actually a way to do both. I mean, this is, and it's not surprising, it's particularly true for women um, in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, now, there is actually a solution to this. And, and, and your friend and mine, Paul Rosin at Penn, mm-hmm. um, was one of the people who... Yeah, she's giving a guest know, lecture in my class tomorrow. Is he? Oh, he's going to steal all of their hearts. He yes. stole me from chemistry. Do you know that? I was a chemistry major at Penn until I took... Paul Ross, I've taught Paul Rosen's introductory psych class to fulfill a core requirement. And I never saw in my life someone who looked like they were having that much fun doing science. Oh, wow. And uh, and so he was like the Pied Piper. But anyway, he um, he did some really interesting and an, a very interesting analysis showing that, that there's a way to reconcile, the, to get around this paradox. And that is to show, to demonstrate the, the aspects of warmth that don't contradict competence. And those are the moral aspects of warmth. So to be principled, to be fair, responsible, loyal, um, to, the things that make you look like you have a moral compass and you're basically a good person, yes. those actually read as warm, but not incompetent. Um, okay. And so I think the, the solution for those of us who aren't very much warm and fuzzy is that you really have to be a person of your word. Um, and, yes. and if you do that, then people will trust you even if you're not terribly smiley and warm and fuzzy. Um, but then, of course, yeah, you know, I don't trust people who are warm and fuzzy and that's all they are. Well, there's good reason <laughs> to wonder. Unless they're like babies or something. I hope yeah. that babies actually get a pass. Yeah. But, you know, the, of course, the tricky part of that is that it takes time. It's not easy to demonstrate that you are principled and loyal in like an initial three-minute conversation. So uh, it's easier to just smile a lot. Um, so some aspects of warmth are easier to convey than others, but, but you do, you, there are ways around it. And like I said, this is, this is stuff that some people get intuitively. Most of us need actually a little help navigating these waters because even though the, you know, the great irony is that even though we are all perceivers, we don't seem to understand consciously much about how perception works. Um, which is just one of those things that just is unfair. Don't you think? Like, shouldn't we know? We all we all recognize a good impression when we see one, but we don't. We seem to be able to necessarily make them <laughs> ourselves. And that's such uh, a good point. You know, I mean, it's a, there's a, so much of psychology. I think is like that. It's you know, my do you other. Want to hear me do an impression of myself? <laughs> I'll do it. You want me to do it? Sure. Hi, I'm Scott Colfin. How are you? <laughs> you know, that's funny. You're really doing a bad impression. <laughs> <laughs> see, I proved your point. We can't do it. My no, point was we can't do it. No, we really, we really, um, it, it's really, it's really. Will you do not, an impression of me? Can oh, I, honestly, I couldn't possibly. Can I I'm hear not, what I sound like? N- n- you, yeah, so when you turn this off later, you uh-huh. can listen to yourself and then you'll, haven't you done that already? I don't listen to myself. I, I know it's hard, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I don't. Uh, so what are two phases of perceiving people? Okay, so the, the two phases of perceiving people kind of map onto, for, for, for people who are listening who are familiar with, um, thinking fast and slow, you know, Kahneman system one and system two, you can think of it that way. Uh, we, we owe a big debt to, to, uh, Dan Gilbert and, and among others for kind of realizing at some point that, that, uh, 
that the, the really in perception there's these two these two phases that happen. The first is automatic and entirely unconscious, and it happens uh, very very quickly. And that's when we come up with that sort of first uh, impression of another person, and, and that is made up of um, a lot of shortcuts and assumptions and stereotypes and all kinds of things that are um, mental time savers. And, and again, you know, the thing about stereotypes, unfortunately, is you don't have to actually believe that they are accurate in order to be influenced by them. Right. Um, you just have to have them come online. Uh, so in the first, and, and what we're doing in the first phase is really the way Gilbert puts it, and I think it puts it elegantly, is sort of what the, the question the brain is answering is what about, what is it about this person that's making them act this way, right? So let's say I, I, come, I come to see you and you're crying. And the first thing my brain would do is say, what is it about Scott that is making him cry? And so the first in, interpretation I might have, and again, this is all happening in milliseconds, is, well, Scott's a very sensitive person. That must be, yeah, I'm you know, crying, crying, inside. Crying, crying inside. inside right now, right? Yeah. So, but then what happens is, uh, if you're lucky, Phase two begins. The phase two is like system two. It's uh, it comes. It doesn't always come online. Um, it's effortful. Uh, it requires capacity and motivation to come online. So in other words, I really kind of need to want to understand what's happening um, and make sure that I'm correct. And at this point, I take into account other things, maybe like the situation that you're in. So I see that you're at a funeral, and then I think, well, you know what? Lots of people cry at funerals, so maybe Scott's not particularly sensitive at all. Maybe it's really the situation that's causing this oh, behavior. That's interesting. Or, or, I use, or I use past experience with you or any other kinds of knowledge I have in order to really kind of try to get the most accurate view possible. But what Gilbert's studies show, um, and these were done, I think, in the 80s, was that if you, inter if you make it impossible for people to go into phase two, by, say, making them very cognitively busy. So you do one of these things psychologists love to do, like ask people to, you know, count backwards by sevens from some huge number. While they're also forming an impression of a person, you'll find that they don't go into phase two because they just really don't have the bandwidth to do it. So they walk away with just a very superficial assessment of what someone was like. They cried because they're sensitive. They were anxious, you know, they're anxious because they're a nervous person. They were angry because they're an angry person. Um, when you don't do that, people will, again, tend to go into phase two a bit. But one of the challenges in perception is that, um, you know, we are all pretty cognitively busy. And so a lot of times we are just going with the gist of what we know of someone and sort of saying, you know, that's good enough, right? We're cognitive misers. We're not going to spend a lot of mental energy trying to figure out someone else if the gist is okay, the gist, if the gist does the job. Um, and because of that, that, you know, we're, we're not, people are not going the extra mile that we might like them to, to really understand us. Um, you know, the people that are close to you, yes, they're going the extra mile. But maybe the people that you work with, um, the people that you, that you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, they're, they're maybe not going the extra mile. No, and I think, they have too much else on their mind. Yeah, and so do you. In fairness, you're doing the same thing to all of them. <laughs> so it really, is, yeah. it really is sort of the nature of perception. And I think rather, you know, and, and you have then like kind of two options. I mean, you can either just rail about the fact that, you're, that people are not understanding you and, and, and you know, that's, that's one option. But it, I don't think it's going to make you any happier. I think what you can then do is say, well, let me take what, what a, as much of this into my own hands as I can mm. and let me 
think about the signals I'm sending in a very deliberate way so that I do come across the way I intend to? And what can I do to maybe make myself more easily understood? Heidi, can you ever overthink this? Yeah. Can you ever like think too much about this where you get into a quandary where like you're not even like interacting with humans anymore? Oh, you can think too much about everything. Yeah? <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I think that where can you Can this want... get too meta? Yes. I, I think you really want to be practical. I mean, I think you want to look at where I would, would tell people this is the most useful is in the relationships in your life that are ongoing relationships yeah. that you feel are not um, all that they could be. Right, that, that you feel like you've really got kind of a misunderstanding. There is a miscommunication happening, and that'll tend to be with people like colleagues. You know, people that you you're seeing on a regular basis, and you really feel like this person has the wrong idea about me. And uh, what can I do to actually do something about? Or you know, or if you're coming into a new working environment and you really want to to get off on the right foot and and make yourself more easily understood to other people, yeah. um, what can you do? I, I I don't think you you know the goal isn't have everybody in the world get me because that's not really important. It's really only important for the people that you interact with and that you, right. that you need to, to relate successfully with. Um, it's important for them to get you to the best that you can. I mean, it's, it's not a hundred percent in your hands, but it's a little more in your hands maybe than you think. And, and that's the idea Good. with the book. I love that. And you talk about different lens lenses that shape perception. Yeah. What's the difference between trust, power and ego? Right. So, so the idea there is that sometimes, you know, perception has an agenda. I mean, it's not simply that we're, we're wrong, uh, you know, that we're having a hard time being right about each other, but that we're actually motivated to answer certain questions or come to certain kinds of conclusions. Um, the trust lens is really about, it's really that warmth and confidence idea. It, it turns out that in general, human beings, uh, the first question we're asking about one another when we meet each other and really for a while going into the relationship is, can I trust you? I mean, it's, it's hardwired, right? It, it goes back to, you know, when we were hunter gatherers and we had to figure out whether or not someone was going to like befriend us or kill us. And it, it turns out it's really important to answer that question uh, when you're, yes. when, when life is on the line and we're still sort of wired to think that way. So are you friend or foe is really the first question. And, and so we're really tune in to these two dimensions of personality, warmth and competence. Uh, warmth signals you're a friend. Competence signals you are a valuable friend yes. uh, or a potent enemy, potentially, if you're not warm. And, um, and, and there's good data to show this from people like Susan Fisk at Princeton and, and Amy Cuddy at Harvard looked at this. And, and, and it's about 80 to 90% of a first impression can be explained the positivity of a first impression can be explained by warmth and competence alone. So it's really a big deal. Um, and I think that's a lens that, you know, can I trust you lens is, is always on whenever you're meeting someone or you're getting to know them. Um, the power lens is really has to do with when someone is in a position of power relative to you. Oh, yeah. We're talking about this earlier, right? Yeah. And, and they're the, really what we know about what happens to perceivers when they're in a relative position of power is that they become even more likely to uh, stick in phase one and never go into phase two. So they're, they're, more, they're more likely to stereotype. They're more likely to just get the gist and go with it. Um, basically, they're less interested in understanding you well. Unless, um, and there's really interesting research um, that, that, that looks at the, the, the unless part. Um, there is a time when per powerful perceivers will pay a lot of attention to you. Um, and it's when they 
when you make it obvious that you can help them reach their goals. So it's your instrumentality. Like, I, I, it, it's funny because with powerful people, what you see people usually do is um, ingratiation. Yes, and, that's you know, right. and, and, and it doesn't work. I mean, it, it's fine, but and actually sometimes it's not if you do it too much. But, um, but, it, but powerful people don't really care as much um, about whether or not you think they're awesome as they do about whether or not you can help them reach their goals. And then suddenly you have their attention. Yeah, well, I and, understand. Yeah, I'm sure you <laughs> I'm sure you know that one from from firsthand experience as well. So so uh, so so that's the power lens, and then the last one is the ego lens. And again, that has to do with again a, a kind of a motivated perception. Uh-huh. It has to do with how we deal with other people's successes. Yes. Um, and and other people's successes can be wonderful or horrible for us, depending on again two sort of dimensions. Right. The first is closeness. Um, so how and closeness is both how how much, how, how fond I am of you, right? Or how, how close we are. Um, but also close just in terms of how often do I see you? Like if I see you a lot, then your successes will, will figure more in my life than if I have, I never see you at all. Right. And then there's uh, relevance. So do I want to be successful at the thing that you're being successful at? Right. And, and if I'm, if you're close and relevant, that's going to cause me a lot of, of psychic pain, right? Because and you can see this in siblings all the time. My favorite example of this is the Emmanuel brothers. So here you have, uh, I don't know if you know them, Scott. So you have Rom and Ari and, um, oh, what's the other Emmanuel? I'm just blanking on his name. He's the medical doctor. Um, so there's one who's a, you know, was a powerful politician. One is a medical doctor and one who is a, a famous um, Hollywood agent. And they're all super competitive. And uh, the way they seem to have resolved that without killing each other mm-hmm. is to have gone in three completely different directions in their careers. So what you do is you basically make it like you take apples and you make them oranges, right? You, you, you make them non-comparable. So my success, my success in politics is not really comparable to your success in medicine. And so therefore, we can both be successful. Um, there are siblings that don't do this as well. Like I've, I've heard that the Bush brothers, for example, are not particularly close. It's not surprising, right? They've both carved out a career in exactly the same area. And it's very hard for people who are close to be both successful unless, and here's the, you know, sort of the what you do about it part, um, unless you create a sense of us, right? So in other words, you, you make it so that you think of uh, your win is my win. Yes. Um, the Williams sisters are in tennis are a very good example of that. Um, but even though they both compete and have literally competed against each other, they seem to have, have built an, a sort of a Williams sister identity that's greater than their individual identities. So that a win for one of them is a win for both of them, um, which is how they, they've been able to really avoid that, that threat becoming an issue for them. So, um, but this is something, of course, colleagues have to deal with all the time. And, and, you know, how do, how, how do I, how do other people, you know, it turns out we're inadvertently threatening people all the time and we don't realize we're doing it. Um, and maybe part of the reason why other people don't like you is because you are a source of pain to them because your successes make them feel less. Um, and again, the solution to that seems to be, aside from maybe don't brag about your successes all the time, but I think that the, the bigger, better solution is creating that sense of, of us um, and making people feel like we're a team and our, you know, and, and when you enjoy their successes very clearly and openly and publicly, then it makes them feel like they can enjoy your successes as well. Um, and that it's really a win for the team 
Um, and and so that's a that's another kind of issue I think that comes up where misunderstandings and, and people not coming across the way they intend to can really you know it's it's a it's a common source of friction in relationships with a pretty a pretty straightforward solution. Yeah. So how can we how can we be seen more accurately? Um, I think in general, what you want to do is think about. Um, what you're trying, be a little bit more deliberate, right? This is another one of those cases, like so many others, where the, the first step is sort of slowing down and and thinking about what am I trying to, you know, if, if you have a situation where you suspect you're not coming across as you intend, and try to diagnose what the problem is, you know, what, where, what, what's going wrong, um, and help. It sometimes if you don't, if that's not obvious, um, then it, that, you know, sometimes it will be, sometimes it's, I know I've come off as arrogant or I know I've come off as not very competent or I know I've come across as not very trustworthy, or I know that I've maybe, you know, hurt some feelings by talking a little too much about my recent success. You know, if you can figure out what the problem is, um, then, then, you, then you can kind of figure out what the next step is to convey what you need to. But, it, but the, really, the main thing is diagnosis. Like, so, wh- wh- where am I not coming across the way I mean to? Where am I not? Like, what? Where is their image of me and my image of me not aligning? And again, your friends are your best source of information. If you if you can't figure it out on your own, then then really go turn to the people you trust um, and say, you know, if, if you didn't know me better. What or you know what do you you know uh, this or this is the situation with this person and this is where where do you think I might have gone wrong in that um, oh. you know a, a good an honest friend will be able to give you some real insights there um, and then and then you know and then you know what signals you need to send that you're not sending yeah um, Zeke by the way what's up Zeke Zeke is the name of the third brother <laughs> thank you <laughs> Ezekiel Emmanuel thank you that is. That was going to bug me. I Thank know. You. It was going to bug me too. <laughs> um, okay. Let's move on to for the rest of this interview to how to succeed in life. Oh, sure. Uh, something you know a little something about. Small topic. <laughs> you, your book uh, for the Harvard Business Review, that just, I mean, and your article for them, I mean, that talk about viral, you know. Yeah. That was my first experience with the viral thing. Yes. Um, so – in there, you have some themes, common themes that I notice um, relating to mindset and relating to willpower and self-control. Those two, set two, those seem to be two common themes across all your books, like succeed mm-hmm. and not your latest one so much, but you know your prior, right. your prior ones. Let's let's fo- let's so let's go through this bit by bit. Let's focus on uh, let's focus on focus <laughs> for a second. <laughs> for a second. Uh, now, why did you why do you refer to it as focus instead of mindset? Oh, okay. So fo- the book focus is actually about promotion and prevention focus. Exactly. But why did uh, you, why not a promotion and prevention mindset? Oh uh, well, because that's what Tori named them. Gotcha. Um, I, and I think it is actually he meant it to be really narrow in that way that a, a mindset is um, you know as the way like Carol Dweck talks about them with growth and fixed mindsets they really are um, broad in the sense that they contain many elements right so a growth mindset is um, not only the belief that you can grow but that your focus is on growth over time it's on comparing comparing yourself to your past self rather than comparing yourself to others. You know, it's got lots of dimensions to a mindset. Focus is in promotion and prevention focus is really quite narrow. It's really, am I thinking about 
this opportunity, uh, whatever this goal is that I'm trying to reach, am I thinking about it as a way to stay safe or am I thinking about it as a way to get ahead? And, you know, Tori likes to really even make it sort of mathematical and say, like, are you are you going from zero to plus one or are you at zero and trying not to go to minus one? And whether, you know, and however you're thinking about your goal, whether it's zero to plus one or zero and avoiding minus one, then has all of these tremendous downstream consequences for the kinds of strategies you use and how you feel about it and and the emotions you experience when you succeed and fail and so on. Uh, What's persuasive to you? uh, What what you find value in? I mean, it's a tremendous difference, but it's, um, it's really based on a very narrow idea that you're kind of focused on a different aspect of what either reaching or not reaching that goal entails. Yes. And so there's various implications for whether or not you have this uh, one, one focus the other for work, for uh, for raising children. Yeah, it's almost honestly like got, it, it got to the point in the lab where we were like, what doesn't this affect? Because it's like name something and it turns out it's <laughs> the influence. Um, Let's talk about love. Let's talk about love because that, that seems interesting. Love. So the way relationships. Um, there do seem to be differences in promotion and prevention and, and relationships. So um, promotion focused people are uh, people who see their goals as being more about going from zero to plus one, right? Trying to, uh, to advance, to get ahead in relationships. They tend to be bigger risk takers. They fall in love more quickly. Um, they are more focused on, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a couple of different elements that go into a relationship and, and that, you know, you can kind of pull apart a little, um, one of them is sort of uh, how, how many how many positive outcomes I get from the relationship, and the other is how committed I feel like my partner is to me. Okay. And promotion focused people really care about the positive outcomes. Uh, they're the people that you know you got to worry a little bit if the grass looks greener somewhere else, and and the positive outcomes seem to be more because they're really kind of gain focused, right? They're really kind of always trying to to advance. So uh, they're quick to fall in love. They're quicker to break up. Um, they tend to, uh, be very, um, very unhappy when there aren't enough positives in the relationship, which is not the same thing as there are lots of negatives. Like when there's just not, there's, there's, there's bonuses, there's great things you get out of relationships. Is extroversion correlated with promotion and neuroticism um, correlated with prevention? A little bit. Okay. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, not as strong as you might think, Okay. Uh, but there is a relationship there. Okay. Um, and that's because a lot of the measures of neuroticism pull heavily toward um, kind of tap into anxiety and worry in that dimension. So one of the things we know is that promotion focus is related to experiencing emotions from a sort of along the dimension of joy to 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 sadness and depression. Okay. Um, prevention focused people who are are more kind of trying to not go to minus one. Um, they feel re- emotions more on the range from an- um, anxiety to relief or calm. Um, so when good things happen, they feel calm, relaxed, relieved. When bad things happen, they feel really anxious. Um, they, in relationships, they are, um, not surprisingly, more likely to be very slow to... Um, I was going to say boring. Not boring, oh, Okay. Slow. No, that's stereotyping. <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they, they're, they're really just slow. They're slow to commit. Okay. Uh, slow to reveal, you know, a lot of... Um, but that doesn't relationships- sound as romantic from a, oh, a West, Side, West Side Story perspective. I'm no, no, West Side Story stuff is all promotion, right? It's all... Impetuous. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
but um, but they're and they're but they're much more um, much more interested in commitment than okay. they are in okay. the positive. So you end up they being sort of slow and and steady, ultimately winning the race. Yes. Um, not a lot of turbulence. And you know, I think that if you're looking, you know, again, it's not as romantic. Um, yeah, that's that's what it, my point was. Yeah. Yes, not as romantic. I, I'll give you that. But I think, um, but often, uh, you know, there's a there's a kind of a stability and uh, a different kind of intimacy that comes about through prevention relationships than yeah. promotion. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, you. I want to be absolutely clear here. There's no there's, universally good one. Oh heck no! And, and you, I mean, in your book, you go great depth about uh, about the uh, the importance of fit, the importance of your own personality, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, because and I think at part, I'm people have said to me like, "Oh, you're clearly a prevention focused advocate," and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm really not. No, you're and, not. But they I, should but read I, your book if they. Yeah, but I but I but I do. You know, it's it, in the United States. We're a very promotion focused culture. We sure. Are. You know, very. You know, the American thing of the American dream, the the you know the lone writer and the the pioneer. You know. The, the creative innovator. These are all sort of iconic, like promotion stories of risk takers and people who go it alone and and they hit it big, you know. And the American culture is just very promotion focused. It's very idealistic about advancement um, and growth and and seizing opportunities. And because of that, whenever I talk about promotion and prevention, and, and the truth is, everybody does some of both. Um, it, when I talk about promotion, for instance, there's a very natural tendency for Americans to say, oh, and promotion's the good one, right? Yeah. And they're like, no, no, no. They're both good because, you know, promotion focus is related to creativity and innovation and speed. But prevention focus is related to being thorough and, and analytical and, and actually keeping things running smoothly, which is also really important. So really if you go to like, if you go to like Germany, for example, and you describe promotion and prevention, then they'll say, oh, prevention is the good one, right? <laughs> so it's, yes. it's, you know, very culture specific. Yes. What people think is the right way to do things. And what the research shows is that you can be equally successful, either being promotion focused or prevention focused. It's really about, as you said, working with your focus, working in ways that fit your focus, understanding it, um, and embracing it. So one of the big differences um, between the two is that promotion-focused people are optimists, quite naturally. Um, and optimism fuels promotion motivation. So it's if you are someone who's trying to really go for it, it really is motivating to be optimistic. But if you're prevention-focused, optimism is actually not the optimal psychological state. The optimal psychological state is what's called, and Scott, you know this, stuff well, defensive pessimism, right? So it's not pessimism. It's not believing you're going to fail. That's not good for anybody. But defensive pessimism is believing you might fail. And so therefore, I need to do certain things in order to make sure that doesn't happen. And defensive pessimism, which is an idea that's been around for forever, and there's been research on this. Why don't they just call it optimistic pessimism? They really should. I like to call it realistic optimism because I, I think of it as really like a, a kind of optimism where you take the yeah. obstacles very seriously. Yes. And prevention-focused people like to take obstacles very seriously. 
And yes. they're constantly being told they're downers and party poopers and, you know, why, oh, why are you always so worried? You know, you're going to be great. And it drives prevention focused people crazy because they know they need to be vigilant to succeed. And, and so I, that's really part of that book focus is really about giving people this window into there really are two ways of going about trying to reach your goals. And there isn't one that's better than the other. And they're just very different. And maybe that's why you know, you and you and your partner fight all the time because really it's not that one of you is right and one of you is wrong, but you're both trying to reach the same goal in the, with these two very different ways. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's a really interesting research difference. And like I said, it, it, it affects just about everything, what we buy, like I said, what we find persuasive, how we study for exams, you name it, it sort of affects it. It's, yeah, I, I highly recommend that people buy all of your books. Well, thank they're, you. they're all really interesting and um, really helpful to achieve your goals. I love Succeed as well. Um, uh, uh, so let's just uh, have another 10 minutes here um, and talk mm-hmm. about um, – we, we covered mindset slash focus. Um, mm-hmm. And let's cover um, the willpower slash grit slash uh, you know, self-control. Well, you have with you at – at Penn, right the next door, to right, next right, door. Right, right next door, right next door, possibly right now, the, the person to talk to about grit. So, uh, so, you know, the, and my take on, on willpower and grit is I, I think there's really kind of two things that I think are really important. And Angie's work on Angela Duckworth's work on, on grit is really extraordinary. And this idea really kind of elevating to the importance it deserves this idea that perseverance is so much of success. Um, and, and really that, um, that it's, it's the hanging in there that really matters. And, and it's not, you know, 10,000 hours or whatever, but it's, it's just, it's really like hanging in there and not giving up is the key to getting better at things. I think that that's, that's so, so very important. And then the other thing about willpower that I, I think is really worth thinking about, um, very seriously is the idea that. That, you know, whether or not, and there's some debate, as you know, in the field about, about whether or not it's related to glucose levels and things like that. But I think the, the thing that about willpower that we can all kind of take quite seriously that's important is that relying on willpower by itself is not a really great way to reach goals, right? In other words, if you, if you, if you, if you decide, and Gabrielle Uddingen's work speaks to this too, that, that if your idea is I'm going to lose 20 pounds and I'm going to do it by just not eating bad things, you know, you're going to not lose 20 pounds, right? It, it's not going to happen because what you've done is create a plan that basically is I'm just not going to give in to temptation. And you're in, and that's asking a lot of you, yeah, because, you know, it's, you're, you know, you're, because we're, we're not, we're not, we're not able to do, you know, we're, Dan Gilbert's book, Stumbling on Happiness, touches on this, the sort of idea of being able to forecast how we're going to feel in the future. In this moment, it may seem like you're going to have no problem walking away from the all-you-can-eat buffet. But what's more likely to be the case is that, is that you, you might actually have a problem walking away from the all-you-can-eat buffet. Um, and so you should not go to the all-you-can-eat buffet, right? So it's the approach that I like to take to willpower is let's minimize how much we rely on it by being smart about the choices we make and the situations we get ourselves into and being prepared with the right choice in advance, right? So don't, this is my favorite example. This is sort of like people walk into a restaurant and you say, okay, well, um, when, you know, when the dessert menu comes, I'm going to be good. That's the dieters love to say stuff like that. I'm going to be good. And then you're looking at the dessert menu. Suddenly being good becomes like ordering, 
you know, ice cream instead of the triple death by chocolate. And, and by the way, like neither of those choices are good, right? It's just we talk ourselves into it. So, so instead, the better thing to have done is they to have decided, good. Yeah, but it's not really going to help you with your dieting goals. So, good. so the better thing <laughs> to do is to say before the, before the menu even shows up to say, instead of looking at the menu, I'll just order coffee. And, and it turns out that the odds that you'll do that increase by a factor of like two to fourfold cool. by just simply deciding in advance how you're going to handle a temptation and not saying, I just won't be tempted because that's ridiculous. Of course you will be. So, so the way I like to think about willpower is let's just not rely on it so much. Whether you have a lot, whether you have a little, chances are you don't know how much you're going to have in that key moment. So instead, let's avoid temptations whenever possible. Let's think through what our options are. Let's be prepared to make a better choice when that moment comes so we don't have to just simply, you know, you know, grit our teeth and bear it. Um, and that makes the odds of reaching your goal actually a lot higher. Heidi, I think we can end right there. Uh, I'm going to go to the gym right now. (laughs) I'm actually not joking. You've inspired me. uh, Fantastic. I want to end this interview before I lose the inspiration to run go to the gym. And uh, thank you so much, Heidi, for this interview and um, for our friendship, (laughs) for your friendship. Thank you, Scott. And thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this amazing podcast series. It's so wonderful to give people access to some of the people that that you've given them access to. Wow. So, uh, so thank you. The service you're doing for psychology and for all of us. Um, and thanks for having me on. Thanks, Heidi. Have a good day. Okay, you too. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. 
Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.